0: Uh, If you need a church Bible, put your hand up. Um, If you do, we're reading uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3 to 7, verse 1. It's on page 1026 in the church Bible. Um, As I read this before before coming up here, um, I was really interested to see that alongside uh, physical afflictions, we have purity and knowledge and patience. Um, and Just the concept of purity and holiness is so foreign to our world today. Um, and I think achieving purity is probably as hard as uh, the physical sufferings. Anyway, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 6 verse 3. We are not giving anyone an occasion for offence so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything By great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God. Through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report regarded as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet recognized, as dying, yet see, we live as being disciplined, yet not killed, as grieving, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet enriching many, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. I speak as to my children, as a proper response, open your hearts to us. Don't become partners with those who do not believe, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises... Let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God.
1: Thanks, Steve. Hi there, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open to two Corinthians chapter six. Uh, my name is Adrian, and it's great that you're here at church today. Uh, welcome to our ongoing series as we work our way through corinthians we love god's word we love god speaking to us through his word the bible um and we love uh, the, the the transformation that he works in our lives as he keeps calling us to holiness and then providing everything we need for life and godliness in jesus christ so it's great that we're here today um how about we pray now that we would respond rightly as god speaks to us so let's pray our gracious heavenly father thank you so much for gathering us here today Uh, Thank you, Father, that we can hear your word spoken clearly in the Bible. Father, please help us to listen. Father, we pray that we would be transformed and changed by this knowledge and that you would call us out of this world of darkness, call us into your kingdom and transform us more and more into the likeness of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Do you know, on the night that the Lord Jesus was arrested and interrogated, Uh, He'd been betrayed, he'd been abandoned, and it's the night before he would be crucified and die in our place. On that night, he's dragged before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who asks him, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom, he says, my kingship, my rule, my reign, my royal power is not earthly. It's not of this world. It doesn't take up swords and weapons to fight to get what it wants. It's not like the way nations treat each other. It's not like the way people treat each other. My kingdom is not of this world and you see that in the next day where Jesus is treated as a rebel and as a criminal and hung on a cross and on his head is placed a crown but it's a crown of thorns to mock him and above his head is a sign to announce his kingship but sarcastically it says Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews the world looks at him and thinks you are no king But Jesus looks at the world and sees people who more than anything in life need a king. And so in response, he offers forgiveness. He offers life, his life, in exchange for the very ones who killed him. And he offers protection and shelter for his enemies. And he endures the suffering and the rejection so that by his death, he opens the way for sinners to come to God. Christians, that's the king we follow. That's the kingdom we belong to, a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom of eternal glory that can't be seen by the world, a kingdom of majestic power that isn't acknowledged by the world, a kingdom of perfect love that isn't experienced by the world because they belong to a different kingdom. And this says everything about how we do ministry. How do we serve this king? How do we pursue our purpose as his people, as his servants in his kingdom? That's what we see in our passage today. Last week we read that the day is here. The opportunity is here right now to be saved, to come out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, and to come into the kingdom of light out of slavery to sin and into the freedom of Jesus Christ, out of fear and doubt and death, and come in to confidence and assurance and life. Paul says in verse 1, we plead with you, we appeal to you, we urge you, receive the grace of God. Receive it and not for no reason, but take it on and be changed by it because now is the day, now is the time, now is the moment of amnesty. If you approach God as a completely wicked, guilty sinner, now, in faith, you'll be forgiven freely and reconciled. But the very clear implication is that day will end and there will be another day. And the Bible calls that the day of the Lord where sinners who approach the throne will be judged rightly, punished justly, and handed over to an eternity of hell. So now is the day to come to God, because Jesus' kingship is not of this world. And so our message is not primarily about life in this world, but about the next. Just as the way we deliver the message to people shows we don't belong to this world, but the next. Because you can tell what kingdom you belong to by who you believe, where you belong, and how you behave. To be a Christian is fundamentally about believing, belonging, and behaving. The truth we are committed to matters. Who we are connected to as church family and the conduct of our lives, how we live, how we walk with Christ. The world believes very different truths, so they belong to a very different kingdom, and so they behave very differently. Which brings us to our passage today, where Paul keeps saying that the truth we believe shapes the people we belong to and how we behave in life and in ministry no matter what people think of us so have a look at verse 3 of chapter 6 we are not giving anyone an occasion for offense so that the ministry will not be blamed instead as god's ministers we commend ourselves in everything now it's interesting that paul says here his ministry doesn't give an occasion for offense Because back in chapter 2 verse 15 he did mention that the gospel message is offensive. Back in chapter 2 verse uh, 15 and 16 to some we are an aroma of death leading to death, to others an aroma of life leading to life. To some we bring the message of Jesus, we are an offensive unpleasant odour. The gospel is offensive. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 he said that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us it who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jews seek powerful signs. Greeks seek compelling wisdom, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, who is a stumbling block, an obstacle, an offence to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The gospel is offensive. There's a reason people reject it, because it tells us that miracles are real and angels exist and that the world cannot be explained just by science and reason. It tells us that heaven and hell are real. It talks about God's fiery, eternal judgment of sinners. It talks about the extent of human wickedness inside every single one of us and our utter helplessness to do anything about it. It condemns in the strongest possible terms what people see as fun lifestyle choices, And it tells us that the answer to all our problems is a man being brutally executed 2,000 years ago. The gospel is offensive to the world. The problem is it's all true. These days people think for something to be true, it must work for me, it must fit around my life, it must conform to my thoughts and my feelings. It has to be my truth. That's not how truth works. So as we live the gospel and speak the gospel, expect people to be offended. Don't be surprised. Don't give up when people are uncomfortable and don't like what you're saying. But Paul here in chapter 6 says, we do not give anyone cause for offense or do anything that will cause them to stumble. It could be translated, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. See, there already is an obstacle for them. Their hard hearts and blindness, we saw in chapter 4, their refusal to trust God, their sin is a problem, but you don't want to add your own rudeness, or your own hypocrisy, or your own laziness, or your own apathy. You couldn't be bothered telling them the truth. So there will be times when you are offended by my preaching, when you're uncomfortable with what I'm saying. And for when it's my weakness and my sinfulness, and when it's my thoughtlessness or arrogance, I apologise and I ask your forgiveness and your patience. But actually, most of the time, it's the gospel speaking to you. It's God's word painfully, awkwardly, uncomfortably rebuking you and calling you to change. The measure of good word from God isn't, did I enjoy it? But is it good? Is it true? True. Does it honour and exalt Christ? Is it creating in me new life? Is it regenerating my soul? And yes, me saying this now means later in the sermon, will be things you may be offended by. So how does Paul make it that there is no obstacle or stumbling block or offence through his ministry? Well, through four main things. Firstly, gospel-driven endurance. Secondly, gospel-shaped devotion. Thirdly, gospel-empowered confidence and gospel-guaranteed citizenship. So firstly, Paul gives no offense through gospel-driven endurance. Have a look at the rest of verse 4 and verse 5. So instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger. That's an interesting commendation, isn't it? We commend ourselves to people through all of this. It's not a worldly commendation, it's not a visibly impressive commendation, but it's a mark of the gospel that Paul has suffered, Paul has endured, Paul has been through so much. Look at what he has gone through for his cause, for the gospel. For the lord and savior you can see his commitment you can see his integrity you can see his perseverance and his truth he's not living in a mansion on the coast overlooking the water he's been through horrible suffering because he's committed to the truth and in the midst of it all he didn't lash out he didn't complain that this was what was asked of him because he is just like jesus he's gone through suffering and hardship He's gone through difficulty and persecution and rejection and he doesn't seek payback. He doesn't give up to go pursue what's comfortable and what's easy for him. He does all this for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of fellow Christians so much. He loves so much. He endures. He goes on that in order to remove all obstacles, his ministry featured gospel-shaped devotion. Verse 6. By purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit by sincere love even as paul endured such mistreatments his life and ministry was still shaped by the gospel he made his appeal to people he urged people to respond to god through purity and with knowledge and by patiently speaking to them with the holy spirit working in him and by sincere love those were the features of his ministry Again, he's putting himself in contrast to the so-called super-apostles who've come and impressed the Corinthians with their worldly outward awesomeness. And he's saying, my ministry endured through hardship, was rejected, was beaten, was dismissed, but continued to be pure with the knowledge of the truth, with patience and sincere love, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention how many miracles he did. He doesn't mention how many books he published, Or how many conferences he spoke on, or how many hits and likes he had on his website. But he's talking about the integrity of his love and his service of the Lord. And again, he's not trying to say how great he is or how much better he is than others. He's simply highlighting the difference between those who trust God's power, who've been made new creations by the gospel those who belong to this kingdom, which is not of this world, and those who want to still belong to the world. Those who do a ministry that's so-called of this world. And again, it isn't just his personal style. It's not just, his how I like to do things, because his ministry is marked by gospel-empowered confidence. Verse 7, it's by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left interesting he started this passage with the idea that we give no offense but here he describes that his ministry is always on the offense he's in a battle he's in a spiritual conflict a battle for hearts and minds and souls the call to christian ministry and service that every single believer has from god is a call to arms a call to defend the truth a call to fight against evil But even here, Paul doesn't resort to sneaky, underhanded tactics. His confidence is always in the word of the truth, which is to say his confidence is in the power of God. And what are these weapons of righteousness that he has in both hands? Well, it's the proclamation of the cross. It's the preaching of the word. Remember when Paul describes the armor of God in Ephesians 6. The armor is the gospel. And remember, the weapon that we hold is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Later in, chapter, in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 10, he's going to pick this imagery up again. If you have your Bibles, flick to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. It's just over the page in my Bible. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You can see the same idea, the weapons of righteousness. It's the word of God that's the relevant powerful weapon in any and every circumstance right hand left hand what we need is the word of god to bring the knowledge of god that leads to thoughts that are captive to god and obedient to christ and notice in this back in chapter 6 as paul keeps saying "I, i i don't put any obstacles in the way i remove all obstacles for people has nothing to do with culture But it's everything to do with spiritual integrity and loyalty to Jesus. It's nothing to do with following the latest trends, but everything to do with avoiding hypocrisy and never losing courage or confidence in the Word of God. Which leads to the fourth point, his ministry expresses gospel-guaranteed citizenship. Verse 8, "...through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true." As unknown yet recognized, as dying yet see we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Here, Paul is describing the dualities of life, the dual reality of Christian life, and as we serve Jesus. From the world's perspective, Paul is a loser. He's dishonoured and he's slandered and he's regarded it as a deceiver. He's unknown, he's dying, he's disciplined, he's grieving, he's poor and he has nothing. The spiritual reality, the eternal reality, the truth that God sees and knows and recognises and will last, the truth of his citizenship in God is that Paul bears God's glory with good report. He speaks the truth. He's recognized, he lives, he survives, he's always rejoicing, he's enriching many, and he possesses everything. Because the kingdom he belongs to is not of this world, which is his point to the Corinthians, to these people he cares for so much, these people that he's worried about. He feels the pain of absence from them because they have believed the gospel then they belong to the kingdom of Christ, so they belong to one another. This is where we truly belong as Christians. Unity and fellowship together with one another in the truth. Just listen to Paul's impassioned plea to them in verses 11 and 13. We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us. I speak as to my children as a proper response. Open your heart to us. It's like a desperate parent addressing their children who just complain day after day, you don't take us to McDonald's enough. I want to watch more TV. I want to have more iPad time. You don't love us because you don't let me do what I want and you won't let me stay up late and you haven't taken us to Disneyland and I don't have a latest smartphone like my friends. You don't do anything for me. And the parent gently but firmly reminds the child, but I love you. I'm always here for you. I've taught you the truth. I've protected you. I cared for you when you were hurt. I've given you good things. Sometimes like dissatisfied children... We can stamp our foot and demand of God trinkets and superficial nothings and not notice that he has given us the greater things in the spiritual blessings of the gospel and in each other. This is how Paul responds to the Corinthians. They are complaining that Paul doesn't care enough for them. He's not cool enough to impress them. And he responds... Our heart has been open wide to you with real godly love and affection. You should do the same with us. And this, this question of who you belong to, who are you connected to, can it continues in the next verse where Paul has invited them to be united in love and partnership with him, open their hearts to him. And then wonders, why would you want to be united with the world? Verse 14, don't become partners with those who don't believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? There's two astonishing truths about who we are as Christians that are revealed in these verses. We are the temple of God and we are sons of the Father. And what that means about how we live is we don't believe the world's lies. We don't believe that we don't belong to the world's kingdom. We are walking on a completely different path to the world. Why would we be joined to them? Why would we be partnered with them? Why would we be united with them and bonded together with them? It's like on a farm and you're trying to yoke together two animals in order to plough the field and get the work done. But why would you yoke two different sorts of animals together of different heights, different power, heading in different directions? It doesn't make any sense. And I wonder if this is how we truly see things with this biblical perspective. We can never belong to this world. We can never belong amongst unbelievers. We will always stand out as weird. We will never fit in. We can never be accepted. And God's word is saying, why would you want to? What do we have to do with them? What partnership or sharing is there between the righteousness of God and lawlessness? We are the opposites of each other. What intimate, close fellowship and unity does light have with darkness? We have nothing in common with unbelievers, this passage says. We are not mostly the same as them, but just have a different hobby on the weekends. We are fundamentally different right down to our core, as different as we are from our old selves, such that Paul said last week, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We are different. What agreement, literally, what symphony or harmony does Christ have with Belial, which is a word referring to the devil, meaning the worthless one, the wicked one? There are two groups that you can belong to in the world. There is no overlap. There is no third option. There is no neutral territory in between. You either belong to Christ in all his righteousness and glory by submitting to him and trusting him as king, or you belong to the one who denies Christ to the devil in all his darkness and evil. And so you can't be joined together with those people. They are the enemy. Imagine Ukraine going to Russia saying, could you please help us? We're in trouble. We're being invaded. Could you please give us some? They're the enemy. And you might think that sounds a little bit harsh. I've met my neighbours. They're quite nice. But if, it, if they're not that bad... And the situation's not that bad. Why did Jesus have to die to rescue us? You can hear Paul's heartache that these Christians he loves so much are thinking like the world. They feel a closer affinity. They seek unity with unbelievers and with liars and with wicked men. Yet they close themselves off to his love and affection just because what he says is sometimes hard. And what he does is not that impressive. So why would we ever run an event as a church with help from non-Christians? We have no partnership. We have no unity with them. Don't ask me why a school, a Christian school, would ever employ unbelievers and say, come and partner with us in teaching these young people about Jesus Christ. People in darkness, could you please come and help us share the light that you have none of? People who don't trust Jesus, could you come and help us glorify and exalt Jesus, who you hate? it doesn't work. Don't ask me why Christian charities would employ unbelievers or take unbelievers' money in partnership to show Christ's practical care and love for the lost in order to bring the gospel to them. It makes no sense. They're heading in the opposite direction. In the same way, why would a Christian look to date a non-Christian? Or purposefully marry someone who is not a believer, is not a Christian, it makes no sense whatsoever. How can you share your life? How can you share your purpose? How can you share your identity with someone who has the exact opposite life, identity, and purpose? Christians, we are called to be in the world, but not of it. Our great hope is for when we get to leave it. Because what we believe determines to whom we truly belong. And this in turn shapes how we behave. Our identity shapes our actions. And you see who we are in verses 16 to 18. Let me read those now. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, this is the bit that I accidentally mentioned earlier, the two, two astonishing truths about us as Christians, because I'm not used to preaching from paper since my iPad got stolen in the office. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out what page we're up to. But this is the bit we're up to. There's two astonishing truths about who we are as Christians in this passage. Firstly, we are the temple of the living God. We are the sanctuary. We are the holy place in which God dwells. We are the presence of God in the world. and What we say and what we do speaks of God. Just as he promised his people in the Old Testament, a time is coming when I will live and walk and dwell with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you a brand new heart. I will put my spirit in you. I will dwell with you, among you, and in you. And it's been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, who died in our place, took our sins upon himself. He absorbed all our sins and faults and failings and the punishment that rightly stood against us, so that as we put our trust in him, we become the righteousness of God. We have Jesus Perfect righteousness given to us. So now we are washed clean and made new and transformed and recreated. God lives in us. We are not of this world. We're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, Ephesians says. That shapes how we live. Once you know who you are, you are the temple of the living God. Why would you go join yourself? to death and destruction and evil. And secondly, we see here in our identity that we are sons and daughters of the Almighty. We call Him Father. What an astonishing privilege. This identity, this connection, this belonging that we share as God's temple, as God's household and His sons and daughters shapes how we live. We can come to God confidently and call Him Father. We can come to God confidently, know that His love for us is, is never ending and so this shapes how we live verse 17 come out of their midst and be separate this is a call to holiness in thought holiness in action holiness in speech we are not like the world we separate ourselves from the world spiritually and therefore morally and ethically and yes we still need to go to work we need to vote we need to participate in society and everyday life someone's got to fix our car yes but we are separated from the world in identity in purpose and in truth and so let me just finish with paul's word to us in chapter 7 verse 1 and then we're going to sing i believe and then we'll have question time in in a moment so Let me finish with this verse. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us in Jesus. Thank you that we did not deserve your forgiveness. We did not deserve to be called your sons and daughters. We did not deserve for you to come and live in us that we would be the temple of the living God. Father, help us never to take for granted what you have done for us, what you have given us. Help us, Father, not to be tempted, to be like the world, to crave what they have, to store up treasure in the world. Father, help us to be transformed, continually transformed, and to belong to this kingdom that is not of this world. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amén.